0: Hello, everyone. I'm Dana Stewart-Bullock, and this is Transformational Therapeutics. Because Rebecca is away this week, Joe Carano will be asking me questions that Kay Dobson, a friend and colleague, provided to help her and others better understand this paradigm. So welcome. Hello, everybody. This week, I'm going to be interviewed by Joe Carano because Rebecca is away. And we thought we'd cover questions that a good friend of mine sent me. I asked her to tell me what she would like to know and what people might like to know about me or this philosophy of transformational therapeutics. So Joe is going to ask some of the questions that she has provided for this podcast.
1: Thank you, Dana. I'm honored to be part of this whole podcast. So we have a couple questions here from uh, Kay. And how have you been able to identify your own emotional pain along the way?
0: Well, I wasn't able to for many years, and then when I I sort of gone on a search all my life because I love learning. When I was in graduate school and we learned how to treat dysfunction, not pain, I learned that pain was defined as an unpleasant emotional experience. And by that point, I was in my mid to late 20s and I'd had back and leg pain and a herniated disc, actually a few herniated discs for a number of years. And when I found out that the definition of pain was an unpleasant emotional experience, it allowed me to then see it as that and then look toward more emotional reasons for the pain that I was having.
1: And I know we've spoken in previous podcasts about how pain is introduced into the system through feedback loops. Can you explain a little bit about feedback loops and what they do and how they work with the system?
0: Well, I, again, I tend to see everything from a much larger perspective. I'm not sure when the whole idea of feedback loops came in, if it was when I was treating, probably when I first learned how to treat, because when I graduated from PT school and started treating patients, one has their hands on a patient, you're looking for a feedback from the tissue, you're looking for verbal feedback from the patient, you're looking for things like range of motion changes, that to me is a feedback loop. And so that was the basis for researching more about what actual feedback loops consist of. And as I moved through my life and through my life experiences and through different forms of treatment, in particular, when I started treating kids with cerebral palsy and kids with autism, it was important to have a feedback loop, particularly with autism, because those kids are so, in many ways, withdrawn and not able to communicate verbally. I had to look for other forms of feedback loops so that I knew that what I was doing had an impact on the Person and/or the tissues that I was working on.
1: The reason why I ask is because the next question is basically, what steps did you take to create your own feedback loops?
0: Well, my own feedback loops, if I'm honest, um, started out with the feedback loop of pain that got my attention very early on. When your body is in pain, you attend. And that became a feedback loop between, I guess, I would say my brain and my physiology in the beginning, and really trying to understand that. I went into this whole thing to basically heal myself. And when I say this whole thing, I mean into manual therapy. I would take classes, and I would get treated, and I kept searching for answers to the different pains that I had, not realizing until later that they were emotional in origin, and then I went along that route. So actually the feedback loops were there. I had pain and I attended to the pain and I wanted to change those feedback loops so that pain was not the instigator for my attention. I wanted to be able to attend and do things with my body that were pain free. And that's how I got into alignment and biomechanics and spines. And it just really took me down that road.
1: So, leading into the next question, it's what challenges have you faced in identifying your own pain?
0: Well, I didn't, I don't find it challenging to identify the pain because it's right there in my face. <laughs> the underlying cause of the pain is very challenging. I started out as a physical therapist who was employed and then self employed and without any real support systems around me, had to depend on my body to make a living. And when I started, Having pain way back in my 20s when I had a couple of herniated discs that urged me on toward understanding why. And I started taking classes on understanding the mechanics of tissues, how the body works, posture all sorts of things in order to treat myself and to relieve myself of pain. And what drove me further was that oftentimes I would be treated by other therapists without real results or any long-term relief of the pain, so I just kept pushing forward. Behind all of that was the fact that I knew I was born pain-free and I had spent 20-some-odd years without pain, and so I didn't understand why I couldn't get back to that state at some point. And that particular drive has been there right from the beginning.
1: Right, and all because of that original statement of, I was born pain-free. Yes. Yeah, so
0: it makes sense. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, yeah, I'm sort of commonsensical in that way. Yeah.
1: So next question is, how did healing some of your own pain and allowing it to clear create more self-awareness within
0: yourself? I'm not sure that clearing the pain created more self-awareness. I think what it did is it freed me up to continue searching. And I see it as layers and uncovering layers. I guess I I would see it as sort of expanding my abilities because as the pain is relieved, I have more abilities physiologically, physically. So it allowed me to expand in some ways into other avenues. As the pain cleared, it in many ways empowered me physically Because I really believe that most pain, all pain, has an emotional origin to it, as you clear out those unresolved emotions and feelings, it allows you more room for experiencing other sorts of emotions and feelings. It's
1: all interconnected. Yes. The next question is actually, how can someone become more self-aware?
0: Well, again, because this model is all about language and because I see the body as talking and the language it's using, in my case, it was pain. And I decided early on that I would not label something a disease because for me, I remember reading Shirley McLean many years ago and she was maybe the first one to introduce me to the concept of the actual meaning of language. And I remember her talking about dis ease and what that really meant. And so it was a lack of ease. Instead of labeling a disease in the medical model in our culture, I thought, oh, dis-ease, a lack of ease. Oh, where in me, in my psyche, in my physical form, in whatever arena, do I have a lack of ease? So I, in general, see everything. I've gotten to the point where I see everything symbolically and I can use a label that the medical model might use, but I like to dig underneath it to the actual meaning of it. So for instance, if I am, you know, people talk about being stressed out. So I like to go underneath that. What does that actually mean? And I remember a quote from somewhere saying that stress is not what happens to you. It's what you do with what happens to you. That to me was just brilliant it gave me the power to see stress in a different way and to ask myself, what's happening to me that is making my physiology have a stress response? I like to go deeper. In the 80s, actually 86, when I did my first esoteric healing course with Brenda Johnston, and I remember her talking about the why behind the why and talking about how on the ancient schools of healing, I believe in Egypt, over the entry was the statement, man, know thyself. I adopted that and that I would ask the why behind the why of everything and learn more and more about myself and go deeper and deeper.
1: Well, it it actually resonates with some of the previous podcasts and how we were talking about the labels and how they're a complete or full stop. And how you've changed and flipped that around, and now you look under a label and you've changed it to, instead of being like, I have a disease, do I have a disease? It's completely changed that label so that you can dig deeper underneath it when most people will probably stop at that label.
0: And yeah, for instance, when I first had a herniated disc, again, my question was, What is a herniated disc? So I did research on that and I learned a lot about biomechanics and how discs actually herniate because I just love the anatomy and and the biomechanics. And then why did it herniate? And on a purely physical level, that was satisfactory for a while. But when the pain didn't change or when it moved somewhere else, I, I went deeper. So why is it happening now? Why is it happening in that area? I just kept asking why.
1: Until you get to the actual cause or close enough to it so that it starts to... And and the way
0: that I know that I'm on the right track is the pain changes in response to asking those questions. Right, either
1: moves or disappears, right? All right, so the next question is, how can someone start to heal their own emotional pain?
0: I think the first thing is, in our culture, I think so many people are in such pain. And if you just see it as having an emotional origin, it just changes how you see everything. And if you can acknowledge that that is a truth. So I remember when I was teaching anatomy at Cornell Medical School in the early 80s, I was teaching uh, lumbar spine and dissected the lumbar spine. The other students were dissecting arms and legs and hearts and viscera and whatever. But I remember talking to some of them saying, you know, no matter what discipline you're in, whether it's neurology, orthopedics, pediatrics, physical medicine and rehab, general practitioner, somebody is going to come to you with back pain and you're going to see it through a different lens. But back pain back then, and I'm sure it's still true, was very prevalent in our culture Mm. and very central. When I was researching back in the late 70s, early 80s, when I was researching the mechanisms of pain, the receptors in the tissues and the biomechanics, I, you know, I, I addressed posture and alignment and weakness and function and dysfunction. And as a PT, those were all things I could deal with. And I learned that the musculoskeletal system makes up 75% of the body. And we did a couple of podcasts on fascia. Back then, we didn't know the extent of it. I mean, that's... A number of years ago, but now it's all the rage. And the pain that I had was intermittent, but it never ended. And so then I went the emotional route to learn what would be the origin of that. Why is it manifesting in my body? And so I just kept searching. And in the, that searching, I became a bit of an expert in anatomy and biomechanics and manual therapy. I never asked any patient to do or experience anything that I hadn't also experienced.
1: So you were your... Your I was, own guinea pig.
0: Yeah, it's my own laboratory, and I still am. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Uh, next question is, define a personal feedback loop and how I can create one in my own life slash emotions to get some answers for myself.
0: That's a really good question. So we all have pre-existing personal feedback loops. This is really where symbolic language comes in. We have them in, let's say, in our bodies themselves. So let's say you have a pain in your leg or in your arm and you attend to it and you say, oh, my arm hurts. Or you can then change that statement to I hurt in my arm. And then you can look at the aspect of the arm. What does it represent? Is it your elbow? Is it your shoulder? There are all kinds of books to look up the symbolism of those areas of your body to just keep digging. And that's just one simple example. When you think about back pain, low back pain, I'll I'll be specific, low back pain, what does the low back do? It's about uprightness, it's about holding you together, it connects the spine with the pelvis. I mean, I tend to use the language and the symbolic language to set up a feedback loop. And then what happens is when you hit on what it might be, your body will tell you that you're on the right track by the change in symptomatology or the feeling in your back. And it's it's a process and it requires dedication. I bizarrely find it fun. (laughs) Many people will not. But in many ways, I found it empowering to be able to figure out for myself, where is the pain coming from? What does it mean? What's it trying to tell me? Oftentimes, I mean, there are classic ways of looking. Bony pain is often ancestral. Burning pain is fascial. You know, a herniated disc, a herniated disc or a bulging disc in your lumbar spine, your low back, is really indicative of some sort of pressure that's built up and exploded In your foundation. I mean, you can just play around with this. You can, you know, also get treated for it. But having an understanding on that level, I feel it empowers me. And it's empowered all the clients I've worked with over the years.
1: Right. At least the ones that have gone on the journey with you. Because that's part of it.
0: Right. You know,
1: it's fun to hear you say that because... You know, some people like to read mystery novels. Some people like to do puzzles. And it's kind of like a combination of all those things together because you're unraveling a mystery and, it, and it's a puzzle. At
0: the and same it's your time. own mystery and your own puzzle. It's your own story. Yeah, yeah. exactly.
1: Yeah. So that kind of makes that whole thing work, you know. So here's a question about how do you manifest positive emotions in your life?
0: Well, I personally believe that the way you manifest positive emotions is by clearing the negative ones. That's how I see it. And understanding where the negative emotions come from and clearing them out so that there's room for more positive ones to happen. Many people are very positive, but they're actually covering up deeper pains. And I have found that because of my background, that doesn't really work for me. What works better for me is to clear out, have an understanding and a letting go, not a clearing out so much as a letting go of these old emotional patterns that are deep, deep in me because they come from really early on in my life.
1: That's the acknowledgement part and then you know, making sure that you're able to release it after acknowledging and that it kind of clears itself. And and
0: oftentimes what I found in getting treated myself, because I've had a lot of treatment, is that having a witness to the negative emotion that might come up out of your tissues is a help in terms of releasing it. I think being witnessed is really important, particularly if they're from early on in life. Right.
1: Right. To have separate acknowledgement as well as Like you said, being witnessed. Yeah. The
0: question is, is
1: how powerful are your thoughts?
0: Your thoughts are very powerful. However, from all the research I've done and all of the understanding and wisdom that I like to think I have, I think most thoughts are driven by unconscious emotions. A lot of thoughts are, and particularly if they're negative thoughts, we oftentimes don't realize that they are. their origin is from early in life, and I've had people tell me over and over again to change my language, change my language, and it doesn't work for me. When I change my underlying emotional feeling, then my language automatically changes. Right. I was listening to someone the other day, and this is, you know, I'm not young, and this was after years of people saying, you know, change how you say that, Dana. So I change how I say that. But if I'm not present in it, it doesn't really change my physiology. I'm always using my own physiology as a gauge. But I heard somewhere, someone saying about a thought, asking myself, how does that thought serve me? And that, made a difference to me. Mm. Just changing how I'm thinking doesn't work, but if I think, let's say I think I'm fat or I'm ugly one day and I ask myself, "How does that thought help you, Dana?" It's like, "Oh, it doesn't." Okay, then I can change it. But just changing it because someone tells me to doesn't work for me
1: because the underlying emotion doesn't change right. with it. Right. How has the possibility of the possibility changed your view on things?
0: Now I've been working with a woman lately and I come from um, a very dysfunctional, chaotic early childhood with a lot of trauma and a lot of PTSD and a lot of terror. And oftentimes that terror will rise up and someone will suggest something to me and I just can't even go there. And she has said to me a number of times, because my automatic reaction is that's not possible. It's impossible. And she has said to me, what if it were just, the possibility of a possibility, and I'll say, oh, yeah, I can do that. (laughs) It doesn't become so overwhelming. And that's what's made the difference.
1: It's actually changed your view on it. Yeah. Sort of related, how can I change my view of the world?
0: Well, I think the most important thing is to want to for beginning to start with. You have to want to change it. And when you want to change it, if you just narrow down I mean, I've often talked about how I see through what I call the lens of lack, which comes from really early childhood, and just to notice that—that that's—is not, this reality, Dana? Are you are you really seeing that realistically, or is the coloring in your lens making it less than it actually is? And so it's to start really slowly and small, and change how you see. But to ask yourself, how am I seeing that? This just came to me. You know, you're driving. I've done this. I'll tell you a story. I used to, when I lived in Manhattan, I, on Friday afternoons, I would uh, grab a cab and go to the airport to fly to the vineyard. And Friday afternoon traffic is not to be believed on the Triborough Bridge at like 5 o'clock. And I would be in a total panic about getting to my plane And I remember one day sitting in the cab, in panic, and thinking, okay, this isn't really functional. Because I'm a PT, I'm very much interested in function. If something isn't functional, I'm not interested in it. So I thought, how can I change this panic and stress around getting to the airport in time? So I thought symbolically, and I remembered the story of the tortoise and the hare. And so then I inserted it sort of in my brain and just played around with it that first time and thought, okay, from now on, I'm just going to think tortoise and hare, tortoise and hare. I'm the tortoise, but the tortoise got there first. And just by changing that thinking, I never missed a plane. And I can remember once a friend of mine lived out west and we were driving from her house in one city to her country house. And I was driving, I went, I think, five miles above the speed limit. And she was like anxious and said, no, I always go much faster. And, and she just kept pushing me. And I was like, no, I'm going to be the tortoise. I'm just going to do this. And so I, five miles above the speed limit, drove however many miles it was, it was an hour or two, and got there faster than she had ever gotten there. So don't ask me how it works. I'm sure there's some physics to it. But that really changed the outcome by changing how I saw things, by using that story to reduce my stress level in a car on Triboro Bridge on a Friday afternoon in Manhattan. Mm. So I'll do anything to to change stuff. To change um, your view or perception. I'll try anything. Yeah. It was, it and I just fun. played with it. I had no idea, but I was looking for some way to reduce my stress as I'm sitting on the Dry bridge. So what are you going to do? You're sitting in a cab you're powerless. the cab driver's in charge you're sitting in you know bumper to bumper traffic. it's not moving. Yeah. My brain just goes and I thought, okay, let me just imagine that I'm the tortoise tortoise and hare. okay, let's just do it yeah. because I think all of those stories are come from some historical place that have some meaning to them
1: and experience
0: yeah experiences yeah you know yeah and we have lost in our culture we've lost the symbolism we've lost the stories the fairy tales we they're there for a reason and they kept culture going for hundreds and maybe thousands of years we don't have storytellers anymore and so with all my research and understanding of symbolic language and stories i just pulled on that that resource and it worked so what the heck
1: Right. Well, I think that's some of the breakdown of society today. Is that we're le- we're losing our our history of experiential storytelling of things that have happened in the past, and now and all these things that-
0: that's the wisdom that we're we're missing. Yes,
1: because and now when it's being encountered in current days, people don't have the tools to deal with it. Right, and that's what's causing a lot of the rage that's
0: happening right now. Right, and that's unfortunate. And that's a form of infrastructure that we're missing in this culture. Story and ritual have, have been decimated. Yeah. It's, and it's, we suffer it's as like a result.
1: A, I think it's down to like a single digit percentage now. The, all, everybody wants to have superhero stories. There's not There aren't any superheroes. There's not going to be somebody that's going to come down with a bu- bulletproof suit and stop somebody else from harming you. It's up to you. Yeah. There's no superhero hero coming. Last question. Yes. (sighs) What does the healing process look like for you in stages?
0: First of all, it is a process. And it happens oftentimes two steps forward, one step back. Mm -hmm. And it requires a lot of endurance and willingness to go into places that aren't necessarily easy. In some ways, it requires you putting yourself first and not at the expense of others, but as an act of healing yourself. You know, people have called me over the years, called me a healer, and I just hate that word. (laughs) But having done a lot of research and had experience with Jungian depth psychology and analysis, and Jung did a, a lot of research and writing on alchemy, and I love that. So, I see myself as an alchemist, not as a healer. Well, alchemist is transformation. Right, exactly. So, so, it's really about changing the form of something into another form that works. And I remember, I may have said this in one of the podcasts when I was doing an esoteric healing class back in the late 80s, and one of the instructors talked about, she said, each of us is a cell in the body of God. And I thought, that's a wonderful way to see it. So, if I am a cell, just me... There's enough work on this cell to be done. Stop worrying about everybody else and work on my own cell. And from an experiential standpoint, when I do that, I have such a huge impact on everybody around me. And they have no idea of the work that I've done. But I see the outcome on the people around me. It's the most difficult. It's the most efficient way. And I spent many, many years trying to heal other people and it didn't work. So just healing myself is really my goal right now.
1: Which makes sense. You beat the path, people will follow you down it. This was fantastic. Thank you, It was wonderful. It was kind of fun.
0: Thank you. And those of you who are listening... If you have any comments, if there are any other subjects you'd be interested in me covering from my viewpoint of Transformational Therapeutics, please email me at transformationaltherapeutics@gmail.com, at gmail.com and I will respond and I will respond on air to requests and subjects that I find pertinent. So thank you.